Hi, this is Michael Gebert, and I have something very serious to tell you. We have received our first rating at iTunes that was not five stars. It wasn't even four. It was two. Someone really didn't like Nitrateville Radio, though they didn't say why. I'd like to ask you to help reduce the statistical impact of this bad karma by leaving a rating and a review for Nitrateville Radio at iTunes. Just three new five-star reviews would raise us from 4.7 to 4.8 stars. So thanks, and enjoy the show. Unlike that guy. There was nudity, um, or at least Annette Kellerman, I think she might have been in like a, a nude body stocking, but... Fox, who always wanted to pull in every possible patron, also advertised the movie as being appropriate for the family. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Curiously, this episode of the next one will share a similar theme, Hungarians in the movies. The first is about one of the biggest brand names in movies and television today, though the man whom the name came from is little known personally. I'll talk to Van de Kraft, author of a new biography of studio mogul William Fox. In the meantime, make sure your Fox News is never fake news. Listen to Nitrateville Radio every time by subscribing at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. It's fair and balanced toward old movies. This is Lowell Thomas speaking, flashing to you the news of the world, pictured by Fox Movie Tone. Some of the early moguls are still brand names today. Warner, Disney, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Others are known mainly to film buffs, Lemley, Zucker, Cohn. But the most recognizable one of all is Fox, which stands for many different brands. Fox News, Fox Sports, 20th Century Fox. Yet the man who started it a century ago, William Fox, is the least recognizable, least remembered of them all. William Fox made Fox Film into one of the most important studios of the silent and early sound era, home to Theta Berra, John Ford, Frank Borzaghi, and F.W. Murnau. Then Fox crashed, in more than one sense of the term, and he lost it all. First-time biographer Vanda Kreft tells William Fox's story in her new book, The Man Who Made the Movies, The Meteoric Rise and Tragic Fall of William Fox, from HarperCollins. I asked her to explain how she came to tell the story of the studio era's most overlooked mogul. The way that I first became interested in William Fox was through his niece, uh, Angela Fox Dunn, 
who was a very good friend of mine. We were both entertainment journalists in here in L.A. and uh, freelance journalists, and uh, she was just a fascinating character, a wonderful storyteller. And she had many vivid memories of her uncle because he used to, although he always lived in New York, he would come out here every winter and spend a few months and she and her mother would go and visit. And so year after year, I would hear these stories about this very colorful and famous person. And I just always assumed, well, somebody must have done a biography of William Fox because, you know, there's a studio with his name on it and many of the other studio founders had been done. And then I decided to leave journalism and I went back to, I went to graduate school and got a master's in communication. And when I, through that experience, I realized what I really wanted to do was write a book. And then I thought, okay, what am I going to write a book about? And then I thought, well, what do I have in my hand? And then I realized, well, there's this great story. Let me see if anybody has done it. And I discovered nobody had done it. And so that's why I decided to write this biography. Did she have any family materials that helped or anything like that? Um, she, There's not a lot that has remained. She had some photos, and mainly what she had were her memories and her insights. And as I say, she was a very you know colorful storyteller. And another thing that, that I think really gave me confidence in approaching this subject was that when I read documents from him it he she had really the same voice as he did so she was really profoundly affected by him and so I felt that in listening to her I would know how to approach him as a character and perhaps have have uh, a a a way to understand him and and what he uh, meant. I would say really the main thing that she had were these very, you know, vivid memories of Fox himself. And she was the last person alive who knew him well, who knew him personally. And then she also had the memories of all the family members as well. So that, that was very helpful. And that's something that simply doesn't show up elsewhere. Well, let's talk about who he was. I mean, Immigrant from uh, Hungary, grew up uh, in the tenements of New York, uh, trying to make a living any way he can, and then he finds something called the Nickelodeon, and it kind of starts there. He always had a sense that he was going to do something great in life, despite those very, very humble circumstances that he uh, that he grew up in and despite really a number of handicaps he was he had a crippled left arm he had only a third grade education but he really believed in as much in America and in the American dream as he believed in himself so that he believed that if you worked hard and you gave everything you had to whatever enterprise you were in then you could ascend to the very highest levels And so initially, he started off in the clothing business because that looked like a booming business in New York, but it was already very well established. And so he was looking around for something where he could really make an impact. And as you say, he discovered the Nickelodeon and the movie business. And in 1904, he opened his first theater in a little hole in the wall in Brooklyn. And he had uh, really great success with that when he it was a second floor movie theater and he it really took off very quickly 
and became a success. And from there, he expanded. He bought other properties just as quickly as he possibly could. Well, I thought it was interesting. Uh, essentially, he became a kind of protege of a... Uh, uh, Tammany Hall figure named Tim Sullivan, who could easily yes. have shut him down early on, but seems to have taken to him instead. And I mm-hmm. suppose, you know, as as in the way of corrupt officials, uh, cash businesses mm-hmm. are always your best friend. And yes. <laughs> he, he expanded, uh, mm-hmm. you know, expanded his uh, real estate holdings and his theaters very quickly as uh, as I suppose people knew that he was in favor with the local regime. In, in fact, that was the way that he was able to enter exhibition in Manhattan. Before that, he'd, you know, he'd been in Brooklyn, but in order to sort of break into the big time, he needed to get into Manhattan. And given how corrupt the whole municipal government was, he really needed a sponsor. And what he offered to Big Tim Sullivan was the ability to work hard and make money. And that was what Big Big Tim was uh, really interested in most of all. So Fox partnered with him, with uh, Sullivan and with some of his associates on a number of building projects, building large theaters, and Fox always made money. And and he was deferential toward the Tammany Hall machine when he when one of their officials got into trouble and they needed to raise money to defend him legally. Fox did his part and bought a boat from this man for ten thousand dollars, even though he really wasn't interested in the boat and he didn't really have time to use it. So he, you know, he he went along and he played the game. I don't think it sat well with him that he had to do things like that, but he recognized the necessity of that. That there simply was no way around it. Well, and as you point out later in the book, he was very resistant to the idea of bringing Wall Street money into his business, probably because he just recognized, uh, you know, same, same game, nicer clothing, basically, than what he was used to with Tammany Hall. So. Yes, very well said. I think, I think that is it exactly, that he was, in, in the beginning, he had to make those compromises, but once he reached a certain level of success, and by the time that Wall Street came along, which really, Wall Street really got involved in the movie business in the late 1910s because it was, really had become a large industry at that point. But I think you're absolutely right that the memories of those compromises, those earlier compromises, remained very strong with Fox, and he was determined to resist it. He wanted 100% control. And if you take someone's money, you have to give them a share of control. And in the late 1910s and early 1920s, that was a very difficult struggle for Fox because he basically had to step back from the top tier of success that he had achieved in the mid-1910s with the Theta Barra movies. He had to step back and go to really the second tier of the industry and try to then push forward back, uh, back into the upper echelon. Which he did do. Well, before that, um, mm-hmm. let's talk about how he got into production. He was showing uh, patent trust films, basically, at, in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And at some point, he became the guy who really led the fight against the patent trust, or at least one of the main leaders of it, who pursued them legally and eventually 
uh, successfully in the courts broke the patent trust. Yes, exactly. He was at that point. He was a distributor. He well, he was also he was an exhibitor, and then he moved into distribution, serving as the middleman between the producers and the exhibitors. And he had a company called the Greater New York uh, Film Rental Company, and the motion picture patents company, which was moving to monopolize the entire industry. They had first, as you mentioned, controlled production. The next step was going was taking over distribution, and they took over, they either drove out of business or bought up every other distribu- film distribution company in the United States, and Fox was the last he was the last one standing, and he decided he didn't really want to sell because it was a profitable business, and he thought, you know, they have the lion's share. I'm just a little guy dealing in the New York metropolitan area, and they should be willing to tolerate me, but they weren't, and they first tried to buy him out. No, he didn't want to do that, and then they tried a lot of dirty tricks to drive him out of business. And he stood up and he he first filed a civil lawsuit and then he and some lawyers went down to Washington and persuaded the Justice Department, the U.S. Justice Department, to file the antitrust lawsuit. And that, I think, was really significant. You know, yes, we hear a lot about the independent producers who were basically just flouting the, the trust and saying, you know, come after us, if you will, but Fox pursued it through the legal channels so that it would be officially shut down. And he was the one who instigated that that lawsuit, and he provided a lot of the funding for it as well, See, you know, in a very kind of quiet way, although it did come out at certain points that he was spending a lot of money. And also he Gave he uh, sent his lawyer to advise the Justice Department on how to handle this case at every step of the of the process. So he was really significant, and I think more influential in that case than really has previously been acknowledged. And I thought there was a great story at one point where uh, he agrees that they can t- that they can buy him out, and then he basically yes. he tells them. Uh, except I'm going to stop servicing all my customers a week before you take possession, and mm-hmm. you won't have any customers by the time you take possession. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And he did that in order to get, in order to demonstrate that his having the license was, you know, that it was contingent on cooperating with them. So that he, what he was trying to show was that, if he didn't do what they told what they told him that they would revoke the license that that it was really a groundless revocation and they fell right into the trap and so as soon as so yes so they reinstated his license when he told them that when he said you know you'll just be buying a you know a pile of junk if you don't do this so they reinstated his license and then he said but I've changed my mind I don't you know I'm not going to buy it revocation of the license so there you go so it was a it was a carefully planned trap. So he winds up, he now is in uh, distribution, exhibition, and production, which is really pretty mm-hmm. much how all the moguls. Um, I mean, offhand, I I can't say that, but it seems pretty much the standard story for all of the moguls that we remember is that they start with mm-hmm. theaters and wind up with studios. And right. mm-hmm. it's interesting. I mean, I think if you're going to say anything about why he's an interesting figure. 
it's that from the beginning he has this sort of mix of high-minded uh you know wanting to make higher quality films he didn't like in the nickelodeon days that he was seen as you know as a smut peddler as someone you know feeding degraded tastes and and you know he wanted to make uh films serious films but at the same time it's a little bit mm -hmm. like the uh the scene in Sullivan's Travels where he says I want to make movies about the current situation but with a little sex and he yeah. winds up uh, <laughs> he winds up in that same situation I mean his first big star is Theta Barra as the vamp mm -hmm. and uh and then the the story that I didn't know anything about was uh Daughter of the Gods with Annette yes. Kellerman mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. considerable nudity um you know, Herbert Brennan is remembered by film buffs for, you know, kind of well-made studio films of the 20s. But this was a Stroheimian disaster that he went on where he, yeah. just, he just spent like crazy and, you yeah. know, came back with more reels than anyone had shot in history. So, yeah, talk, talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, that was um, that was 1916, and Fox touted this as the Hollywood's first million-dollar movie. There's some question as to whether it actually was a million dollars, but even Herbert Brennan later on in life said, "Well, it was at least eight hundred thousand dollars." So, you know, it's it's plausible that if you add up all the all the various expenses, it might have been a million dollars. But that's how it was promoted, and remembering that they were at that point they were everybody was really figuring out how how do we do this how do we make feature films and fox made this movie with the idea that he wanted to make a lasting artistic monument he really wanted to do something great and he didn't particularly he didn't want to go to california so he decided they were going to go to jamaica well he and her Brenna decided that so Jamaica had nothing, no film industry at that point, so they were going to basically invent it down there, and I think, and that's where a lot of the disastrous events have, happened because they were there was no um, structure there to support them. They had to invent it basically. So many, many things went wrong. Um, it was uh, it was this elaborate. Middle Eastern flavored romance, fantasy, and unfortunately the movie is lost, so we can't really, you know, independently judge it. And it's even hard to figure out what exactly it was about because I think that there were various versions of it that were sent around the country. And when you read, when I read the reviews, they would present the plot quite differently. So just generally, it was this, you know, elaborate Middle Eastern. Uh, kind of fantasy movie with a lot of uh, sort of elaborate um, double exposures and a lot of outdoor photography, which at the time was very unusual. And Herbert Brennan had images of the waves coming up, splashing over the cameras. He filmed with, I think it was six cameras at the same time, which at that point I understand was, was rather unusual. Uh, but he was overwhelmed and the Fox had stars in his eyes about Brandon. He thought he was a genius and that he could do anything. And I don't think he understood the level of difficulties that Herbert Brennan was facing down there in Jamaica, trying to make this massive epic. And so Fox was, he was shoveling money into this production 
And Herbert Brennan, as you point out, was kind of going wild. I think not because he wasn't talented, but I think he was just under so much pressure and he was running late and he didn't really, he didn't have a specific script that he was following. So inevitably it kind of broke down and he, and Fox would keep saying, well, you know, I'm really eager to see what you've got, you know, and Brennan wasn't sending anything back. So when he arrived back in New York, he had, as you say, all of these, you know, several hundred reels of film and, what are we where's the story in this what are we going to do so brennan was resentful toward fox for not really i think you know supporting not not providing what he felt was adequate support or understanding and he he at one point begged fox to come down there and help him out and fox said i i can't i've got too much up here that i need to do and you'll be fine you'll be fine just tell me what you need and i'll send it to you in terms of money or in terms of supply so the relationship broke down there, and it turned into rather a fiasco of a relationship. They basically weren't talking. Herbert Bennon quit. They sued each other back and forth. But by all accounts, it, it was, or according to the reviews, it really was a spectacular accomplishment and I think it's so sad that we don't have it to be able to see it but as you mentioned there was nudity um, or at least Annette Kellerman I think she might have been in like a, a nude body stocking but it you know simulating nudity but Fox who always wanted to pull in every possible patron also advertised the movie as being appropriate for the family because it was going to show, you know, girls how to remain, you know, attractive and ladylike or something like that, and boys how to, uh, you know, <laughs> be good men, be good brave men. So he was trying for every angle on this. And it's if there was a lesson to be learned, I'm not sure it was since the next big picture that came out of Fox is Cleopatra with yes. Theta Barra, mm-hmm. which also was kind of a, an epic production and then also unfortunately mm-hmm. lost, so we can't judge it yeah. today. Um, mm-hmm. And that uh, was sort of the end of her days. And, and as you said, it, things got kind of tight in the 20s. It kind of slipped from a top-level studio. What what happened there? Yes, well, and, and that was interesting because, you know, it, often when, when film history writes about Fox, they they just write about him as being a purveyor of sort of, you know, B-movies and kind of schlocky stuff. But that really wasn't, when I went back and looked at it, that hadn't been true for the mid uh, mid nineteen tens because as you say you know well, we have the daughter of the gods Cleopatra there was the tale of two cities Fox did a version of Les Misérables so you got these really you know big movies and then at the end of that decade and into the early twenties he drops back and so I thought well what's going on there and what I saw happening there is that Wall Street money was flooding into the industry. And as we just discussed, Fox was adamantly opposed to giving up control, which is what what it would have required to take to let the bankers in. They, then he would have had to let them on the board of directors, and he would not be in sole control. So what happened was you, you had um, this... Uh, sort of integration, more integration between 
production and exhibition because as the audience was getting more sophisticated, they wanted more sophisticated movies, which meant bigger budget movies. Okay, so if producers are going to spend more money on making movies, they need more assurance. It's such a risky business. It is today and it always has been. How can you build in more of a guaranteed audience? Well, the way you do that is you buy up theaters, theater chains, and then you have, it, it's kind of the the chain store model of marketing. You know, you're you're producing the merchandise and you need to be sure that it can reach the public. So you, you know, buy the quote retail store, which is in this case, the theaters. So how do you get the money to buy the theaters? You take the money from Wall Street. And so First National started um, in at this time. They were really the first ones that moved, that, that pushed that in, in that direction. And then Adolf Zucker at um, the famous player Slansky, he fought back against that, and he really went big into that, uh, into that, just going through, buying up, theaters throughout the country and so you had this this tight alliance between production and theaters William Fox in not taking the money from Wall Street didn't have the money to buy those those kinds of theaters so the big fancy you know the big city first run theaters were in in many many cases they were locked into those relationships with other studios other production companies so he didn't have access to them. He had to step back, and he had to make movies for the, um, you know, the sort of second run or the neighborhood theaters that couldn't pay as much, which means he couldn't spend as much on his movies. So it was so, kind of like Universal, which had more of the small town and rural theaters and tailored its production mostly to westerns and things like that that you could make efi- efficiently and and uh, send out to those theaters. What did what kind of movies did Fox make at that point to service their audience? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, he mostly was was making m- melodramas. You know, uh, domestic stories. Um, you know, lots of murder and gambling and uh, alcoholics and and uh, bad fathers were a big theme in his in his movies. Nothing that is really all that nothing that has survived that is all that memorable. Um, his biggest movie, I think, from that from that period was nineteen um, twenty. Um, when I'm, and I'm blanking out on the title. Is it over, um, over the Hill? Over the Hill. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why it suddenly disappeared from my mind. Yes, that was a very big hit in in 1920, and it was one of his favorite themes, which was Mother Love. It was the story, and, and it really kind of hit, I think, a, a prevalent theme in society at that time, which was the d- devoted parents, but especially the mother, because Fox adored his mother. She was the person who really, really believed in him and encouraged his dreams. So it's the it's the mother who does a good job of raising her family, and then the children all go, the adult children all go their own way because they're moving up in society, and they have their own families, and they forget about the past, and poor mother gets relegated to the, to the poor house. And then it is the kind of black sheep, the supposed black sheep of the family 
who learns that she's there and comes and rescues her. And it was a real tearjerker for its time. Fox, it, it was a little movie. It didn't spend very much money on it, but Fox really, really believed in it, and he just promoted it to the hilt, and then it made a fortune. So that that was his that was the kind of thing that he did. He, he and he did several subsequent mother love movies like that, and that would always be a theme throughout his movies. But generally, these were just pot boilers. Theda Barra had left at that point. She quit in uh, 1919, I believe. She was going to go off. She was, in her own mind, a great actress who didn't need Fox film anymore, and so she was going to go off and have a great stage career, which she didn't. So he didn't have access to her. She was gone. He tried to... I think replace her with Betty Blythe, the actress in Queen of Sheba, which was another was a sort of was a larger Fox movie, um, nineteen twenty one, I believe. It's interesting that uh, more so than stars at that point, what he really was good at developing apparently was uh, ambitious young directors, two in particular, uh, one John Ford, who would wind up mm-hmm. doing The Iron Horse and things like that, mm-hmm. and another Frank Borzaghi. Um, yes. mm-hmm. And then by I guess he's doing better by the late 20s because his ambition uh, may be in a little bit of a repeat of the Daughter of the Gods business. Uh, mm-hmm. He he lures F.W. Murnau to Hollywood. Yes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. after some back and forth, it sounds like uh, Winfield Sheehan, who was uh, Fox's head of production. And I didn't realize he was he was basically another Tammany Hall figure who uh, yeah. just kind of mm-hmm. went into the movies uh, to get away from possible legal troubles that he had in yes, New York. Yes. <laughs> well, he had lost his job. You know, he, he was embroiled in a scandal, and he lost his job, so Fox brought him in. Yes. But it's interesting reading, uh, you know, Murnau is talking about these very arty things he wants to make, mm-hmm. and Sheehan is basically, yeah, but we need a like a normal movie that'll sell. And (laughs) then Murnau complains to Fox and he gets his way. But they wound up spending, I mean, Sunrise obviously has a a huge reputation as a classic. Uh, Mm -hmm. Arguably won Best Picture along with Wings that first year since they gave two Best Pictures, basically, uh, Mm -hmm. at the Oscars. But didn't make money. I mean, it lost some money. And... Mm -hmm. I, it sounded like they felt kind of burnt by that whole situation. Yes. I think it was really tragic, tragically handled and, and miscommunication. My reading of that situation was that Murnau, coming from Germany, this being his first American film, he, he just really didn't understand the strong commercial underpinnings of the industry. And that yes, go ahead and make great art, but make sure you make your money back. And I don't think that anybody really explained that to him. I think it was just, well, everybody understands that. And he was definitely Fox's pet. Fox had brought him over, and the instructions that Fox gave him were, make me a great piece of art. I will give you carte blanche and, you know, financially spend whatever you need to spend. And you're absolutely right. You know, this is in many ways, it's a repeat of the Herbert Brennan and a daughter of the gods scenario, because that's the, that's what he told Brennan. And that didn't turn out too well. So, but here he's bringing in Murnau who had made great films in, in Germany and, Fox just assumed he would 
you know, I, I think he just assumed that everybody understands you've got to make money. So he, so his mandate to Murano was simply make me a beautiful artistic movie that will last, that, that you know, will be immortal. And Murnau did that. But I think with that tight relationship with Fox and being sort of the teacher's pet, he incurred resentment from Sheehan, who was a rather sort of jealous character, and and Saul Wurzel, who was the other uh, production head below Sheehan at that point. So after Sunrise was finished, um, William Fox really believed in the movie, and he really, really wanted it to do well. And uh, I think he recognized that it was going to be a difficult sell to the audience. Um, It was released, uh, as we mentioned, in the fall of 1927, uh, right at the time that Warner Brothers was coming out with the jazz singer. So you had competition from you know, this uh, from Talking Pictures, which is awfully hard to go up against. Um, it, additionally, from the reviews that I read uh, uh, at the time of Sunrise, it was perceived as being a bit cold emotionally. And it didn't have, you know, the formula of a tear and a smile to really hook the audience in as as beautiful as it was. So it was more of, I think, you know, an art, it was perceived as more of an artistic achievement um and it was really hard to pull people in fox just you know he tried putting he tried telling the press that it was making a lot more money than it was he tried giving away free tickets to really try and create the appearance of a sensation um he also uh, for its premiere he paired it with a uh, a fox news talking newsreel segment of mussolini and some people have commented, well, that was awfully strange. Those thing, two things are really contradictory in spirit. You have this bombastic, you know, fascist um, dictator with a, you know, a very sensitive um, work of art. But I, I disagree with that point of view. I think Fox was he was trying to pull in anybody and everybody, and that if you come to see Mussolini, you know you're you're gonna you're gonna stay for Sunrise at least part of it, and the money that you pay to get in to see Mussolini is going to count towards Sunrise. Yeah. And so come, I, I come think for that fascism, stay for Janet Gaynor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, you can imagine. You know what a mixed bag that audience probably was. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, all right. So, so it's the end of the the silent era. Uh, nobody knows mm-hmm. it yet, but it's about to be the end of the Roaring Twenties, and that takes mm-hmm. us into the other chapter of uh, the rest of Fox's life, really, which is Marcus yes. Lowe, uh, head of Lowe's, and thus essentially head of MGM, uh, mm-hmm. dies, and. Yes. Fox makes a bid for the Lowe's theaters in an effort to become really the Rockefeller of the movie industry, the dominant figure, and it mm-hmm. doesn't it doesn't work. Sadly, it does not. Yes, um, Marcus Lowe died in 1927. Um, th- his widow and their sons inherited a substantial block of the stock, and that's what everybody was going after. Fox did succeed in buying that block of stock. And then and that was in early 1929 that he, that he bought that. 
subject, he believed that he had clearance from the Justice Department that there would be no antitrust objections to that. One unfortunate thing that happened was that the person who had given him that assurance was expected to be named under Hoover as the attorney general and did not get the job. Somebody else got it. So that was the first destabilizing factor. Then Fox Fluke in July 1929 was in a very, very serious car accident, and he was disabled for three months, the very three months that were leading up to the stock market crash. And he was not, therefore, really able to anticipate and to prepare for that event. And when that happened in late October 1929, everything fell apart for him. So uh, he had borrowed $27 million to make that purchase of the stock from the low family, from the widow and the sons. And he, those were short-term loans, one-year loans. And in the chaos following the stock market crash, he simply wasn't able to arrange long-term financing. And he also became vulnerable to what I see as a Wall Street conspiracy to take his companies away from him. And that's what he had always presented it as being, as being a, a conspiracy. And people have tended to discount that and say, oh, he was just being paranoid. He made a bad decision, and it's all his own fault. He deserved to lose his companies, which he did. He lost control in April of 1930. Um, But I, I think that the evidence really shows that, in fact, it was a conspiracy. Um, the vultures swooped as vultures do yes yes and and they were able to swoop because of all the panic and terror that ensued from the stock market from the stock market crash people accused him of having um, mismanaged dishonestly managed the finances of his companies which wasn't true but you could basically you know throw any accusation around and it would achieve a certain amount of credibility because nobody knew what to believe and the safest thing was to be suspicious and so his adversaries really tried to destroy the companies and they used that um, leverage of those of those two short term of the short term loans, the twenty seven million dollar loans, to you know the, the organizations from which he had borrowed the money did not really want the money back. They wanted control of his companies, and so they threatened essentially to destroy the companies unless he handed over control. And so he he fought and he fought and he fought, and then he realized that he was going to lose and that his companies, which he really loved like children, there were you know, not only Fox Film, but also Fox Theaters, which at that point owned close to a thousand theaters. And some of them were just really super deluxe palaces, movie palaces. And I, he, he saw them as being in danger of just being ruined. And so the better alternative was to let somebody else take them over. Now, it's interesting. You don't see a lot of those early Fox films very often. Uh, but I did. I had that Murnau Borzaghi box set uh, yes. that has mm-hmm. that has a few early 30s, like 30, 31, 32, 
Borzegi films in it, and you can see the mm-hmm. budgets just dwindling. I mean, to go from Seventh Heaven to something mm-hmm. like uh, Bad Girl or After Tomorrow, uh, Borzegi's trying as hard as he can, but he just doesn't have, you know, the, the money is not on the screen. And right. it mm-hmm. seems like, you know, in a sense, Fox survived as 20th Century Fox, but really it seems like Daryl Zanuck took it over uh, with the help of Nicholas Shank and mm-hmm. basically took the infrastructure of Fox and but it was his own studio. So really Fox in a mm-hmm. sense kind of did die a few years after William Fox was was pushed out of it, I think. Yes, definitely. And and it's shocking it was shocking to me to look at what happened after Fox was pushed out. And the person who took over, who, who was installed by essentially by the Chase Bank, was a man named Harley Clark, who was a utilities magnate from Chicago, who had in his stable, in his holding company, had a theater supply company, and that was about as much as he knew about the movie business. And he it was disastrous. He was also not particularly honest, and basically... He was trying to, he was, I would say, really basically stealing money out of the companies to support his other, uh, his theater supply company, and he just plain didn't know what he was doing. So there was chaos, you know, going, taking an organization from the control of one person who knew that industry inside out, who had been in it for 25 years, who had been in every facet of it from exhibition to distribution to production and really to hands-on production because Fox had been very involved with the early movies, with making them, with, you know, approving the stories. He always said that he reviewed every single foot of film that went out under the Fox film banner. So you go from, from that environment of somebody who really cares, who loves the movies, and then you install somebody who doesn't really care about them at all, who only cares about money. And I think the the plunge in morale must have been tremendous. I mean, Fox was a tough boss, but if you did your job and if you cared about your work, then you were fine. You would be there for you would have a long career and you could afford to, you know, have the the dips and the valleys in your career. He would support you, he'd stick with you. Um, so to go from that to somebody who doesn't care about the movies and doesn't know anything about making them, that's why those budgets were slashed. And I, yep, I agree with you when you look at, you know, totally when you look at Frank Borzaghi in particular and those beautiful movies that he made for Fox that are just so heart-wrenching and so touching and so just really beautifully made. I love those three that he made, Seventh Heaven, um, Street Angel, and Lucky Star. And, you know, I could watch those over and over again. And then you look at the early 1930s, and they're just they're just disappointing. It's not there. I think, you know, in addition to the, to the money being absent, the support and the encouragement and the, the, the faith that he would have had from the top also wasn't there. I think, you know, Borzegi's outlook was very much similar to Fox's in terms of what makes a good movie and how do you appeal to an audience. So I think his vision was really supported, <clears throat> excuse me, supported entirely from the top. And then to be cast into this environment of somebody who just plain doesn't care and doesn't really 
doesn't understand what you're doing and doesn't really care what you're doing would be quite dispiriting for an artist like Borzaghi. Um So the the company Fox Film just just plunged into red ink in the early 1930s. And when Fox handed over the company, it was at the height of its prosperity. And then it just fell off a cliff. And year after year of bad results, no successes particularly. They did have Shirley Temple. Sheehan did, Winfield Sheehan did discover Shirley Temple, but she was she was making relatively low-budget movies. Um, of course, she was a, was a big success, but not enough to really push the studio back anywhere near to what it had been under Fox. And so the whole reason for that merger in 1935, the merger with Xanax, 20th Century Production Company, was that they needed money. The Fox film needed money. And it was a good marriage in the sense that 20th Century didn't have any studio facility. So they needed the land and the, the production facilities. And they also... and they had the talent with Zanuck, to which Fox Film didn't have. You know, they were really struggling for to find somebody who could even approximate what William Fox had been. And and Zanuck had that talent and ability. He knew how to make money making uh, movies with a lot of uh, commercial appeal. So that's that's why that happened. It was just, it was mismanagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Zanuck coming to Fox, is, it's almost like Steve Jobs coming back to uh, Apple. You know, it's yeah. like they, they, yeah. <laughs> they need a boss who can be the boss at that point, mm -hmm. really. Um, so you said it was unfortunate that Fox didn't achieve his, his dream. Obviously, it's personally unfortunate. Um, mm -hmm. But what do you... What do you think he would have done differently? How would Hollywood be different if he had succeeded in becoming, you know, by far the dominant figure within it? Yeah, that's that's a really great question and because I think he would have done so much more. He had just such an expansive vision for what the movies could achieve. I think what he would have done is he would have pushed widescreen technology more. He had started to develop that and he had grandeur in 1929. That was dropped by his successor, Hardy Clark. Fox believed that if they had pushed that, that it could have offset some of the losses that were felt by the industry due to the depression, that it would have been such a big attraction that it would have drawn more people into the theaters. I think he would have... Uh, done that and widescreen I don't believe came back until the 50s until when the motion picture industry really was decimated by television but I think one would have had that earlier I think Fox also would have pushed color earlier um, I think maybe he also would have developed pushed to develop television earlier he was looking into that and he was very aware that that was one of the reasons that he started uh, that, that he started developing widescreen was the early TV broadcasts were in the you know, on an experimental basis, not commercial, but in the late 1920s. And he saw that, and he knew this is someday this is really going to 
take over or it's going to eat up a lot of the movie business and we'd better be prepared. And so one of the reasons he pushed widescreen was because that's something you couldn't do on television. So it would be a spe- you know spectacular movies. That's a reason to come to the theater, not to stay home and watch television. But I think he probably would have um, explored television more too. And I think he would have made a lot of really great movies that we don't even know, we can't even imagine what we've lost in that respect. He had had an eye for talent. As you pointed out, he really particularly valued the talent of directors. And I think he very well might have identified new talent, new up-and-coming talent, and given them the chance and stayed with them and helped them develop their talent. And so that's what we don't know that we don't know about him. It's here at last. Shirley Temple's pony arrives from the Shetland Islands. It was given to her by Joseph Skink to commemorate her third anniversary in pictures. Signed, sealed and delivered, and Shirley renames him Spunky because he isn't afraid of anything. Well, Shirley, it looks like you're going to take your riding seriously and regularly. You're fond of him, and he likes you. You should be great pals. Thanks to my guest, Vanda Kraft, and to Lily Lopate at HarperCollins. I'll have links for her book on William Fox in the show post at nitrateville.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Our series on Hungarians in Hollywood and their biographers continues in the next episode, when I'll talk to Alan K. Rohde about his new book, Michael Curtiz, A Life in Film. Don't miss it or any episode, subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And help us fight back against those thankfully few grumps. If you feel like it, leave us a rating at iTunes. It helps spread the word and keeps our audience growing.